This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Random Acts of Kindness segment. You can find all sorts of these uplifting stories all over this great country and at randomactsofkindness.org. It's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with your kids. And also make sure to leave your story there. Our first story is from Memphis, where we found some kind cops and a young man with a very clear sense of priorities. It's a heartwarming video already viewed thousands of times. Memphis police officers brightening the holidays for an 11-year-old burglary victim. Tonight, the officers are talking about going beyond the call of duty. WMC Action News 5's Jason Miles live tonight with their response. Jason? Those officers work here at the Crump Station Police Precinct. They hope what they did inspires others this holiday season. You see on the news what Memphis police often encounter while on the job. 11-year-old Tontravian Campbell is proof that it's not all bad. Officers replaced the Xbox stolen during a burglary at his family's home. When we asked the, the child if he's going to get a new Xbox for Christmas, he said, no, my mom you know, doesn't have that kind of money. And... Um, all the money she makes goes to pay the bills. Officers from Crump Station's Charlie Shift talked to us about the gesture, which went viral Sunday thanks to this Facebook video. This house was burglarized not too long ago uh, today while these folks were at church. They say Tontravian was more concerned about his mother than the stolen Xbox, which is what impressed them the most. Just to be able to alleviate some of his stress, just for that day and actually help their family when in this time, like Christmas, it, it really was an overwhelming feeling. Contravian actually posted a comment on the WMC Action News 5 Facebook page, writing in part, quote, am so thankful. His mother added, quote, I'm truly grateful for the generosity that was given to my son. Policing is not really about just going into dangerous situations. It's definitely about helping out the community as well. No problem, Something one 11-year-old found out firsthand. And officers bought that new Xbox and three games at the GameStop store in Midtown. The store donated an additional controller. Reporting live from the Crump Station Precinct, Jason Miles, WMC Action News 5. And our second story comes from CBS's Steve Hartman, who meets some of the most interesting and some of the kindest people in this country. For a deaf person like Ibby Paracha of Leesburg, Virginia, getting the drink you want at Starbucks can be a tall order. But Ibby says not here, thanks to a barista who recently did something truly Hello. grande. And when I came in, the first thing she did was she wrote the note. So I thought maybe she had a question for me or something. But it really wasn't a question at all. And as I read through it, it shocked me. He immediately posted this picture of the note which read, I've been learning ASL, American Sign Language, just so you can have the same experience as everyone else. What can I get for you today? That barista is Crystal Payne. Two Trenta iced coffee. She's new here. In fact, she'd only waited on Ibby once before deciding to go home, go on the internet, and learn sign language for him. Maybe I spent like three or more hours on it. Getting ready to take one order? Yeah. If he's a regular and I want to make that connection with my regulars, I should be able to at least ask him what he wants to drink. What you want drinking? Today, Crystal knows everything she needs to wait on Ibby. Caramel frappuccino, please. And that really is the extent of their interaction. To Crystal, it's no big deal. 
But to Ibby, who says navigating a hearing world is often frustrating, what Crystal did was a wonderful gesture that he will never forget. He even saved the note. It was something that was very inspirational, so I wanted to, to keep it in the frame. Sometimes, customer service gets a bad rap, and it's often well-deserved. Hi, what can I get for you today? But there are those frontline workers who go above and beyond, not for a tip or because the boss is watching, but because kindness is who they are, and the customer, all they care about. And it's just something that really gave me genuine happiness. Even now? Yeah, even now. Still smiling. (laughs) And finally, here's a story about how regularly ordering a pizza saved a man's life. In the middle of a very busy Saturday night, the staff at this Domino's Pizza on Silverton Road realized that they hadn't gotten an order from one of their favorite customers in almost two weeks. So they went to check on him, and sure enough, he was having a medical emergency. So we always orders online, so it pretty much just comes up on our main line. Every couple days, Sarah Fuller's staff gets an order from one of their regulars, 48-year-old Kirk Alexander. But over the weekend, it dawned on everyone that they hadn't seen Alexander's name pop up for a long time. A couple different people had pointed it out to me, and so Saturday night was when I finally decided to look up to see when his last order what happened to be, and it was 11 days ago, which is not normal at all. Sarah sent a delivery driver to Alexander's house, and something was clearly wrong. He called us back and said that, you know, he knocked and heard the TV, but he didn't have an answer, and so we gave him his phone number, and then he tried to call. The staff called 911, and when deputies arrived, they heard Alexander inside yelling for help. They forced their way in and found him on the floor having a medical emergency. I bang on the door, but he doesn't always answer. Neighbor Robert Lalonde knows that Alexander's had health problems, so he keeps an eye on him, too. He was also worried that something was wrong, so he's grateful that Domino's stepped in. That's awesome. That is awesome. You know, most people just take it for granted. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's really cool. These Domino's employees are always on the move, trying to make and deliver food fast. But they say they're never too busy to help someone in need. We're always looking out for everyone out there and caring for our customers especially. And early yesterday morning, paramedics responded with deputies as well. They rushed Alexander to Salem Hospital, and he is still there tonight in fair condition. Live in Salem, Jamie Wilson, Fox 12, Oregon. And there you have it from all around this great country. From coast to coast, it's constantly happening. You just never hear about it. But here on Our American Stories, we do it every week. Random Acts of Kindness. And you can go to randomactsofkindness.org. Look for stories like this. Better still, post your stories there. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to catch all of our stories and all of our random acts of kindness. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories. And we take our stories where we find them and from storytellers who we like. And once we get one thing good from a storyteller, we want more. Generally, a good story isn't an accident. In the past, we brought you author and public policy leader Herb London's tribute to his late father, Yankel, as part of our Final Thought series, where we do eulogies or remembrances of famous and not-so-famous people who've lost a loved one. But there were two more men that Herb London wanted to pay tribute to, two more folks he looked up to, two more people that impacted his young and future life. Let's take a listen to this tribute from Herb London. Simon and Garfunkel once plaintively asked, Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Where indeed? DiMaggio was the Fred Astaire of baseball. He moved with grace and effortless agility. DiMaggio's first seven years in Major League Baseball are among the most productive in the history of the game. DiMaggio didn't strut after a home run or pump his fist in the air after a game-winning hit. He simply went about his business without fanfare, without any of the flamboyant rituals that now accompany modest accomplishments. One might say that Joe is a reluctant hero who understood the virtue of humility. In the interest of full disclosure, I was not a DiMaggio fan. That's largely because Joe's talent was used against my beloved Brooklyn Dodgers in 1941-47 and 49 World Series. Joe might have grimaced when Al Giamfrito robbed him a home run with two outs, two runners on, and the score 8-5 to five in the sixth game of the 47 series. But the Yankees still won it all. He started baseball's famous streak that's got us all aglow. He's just a man and not a free Jolton Joe DiMaggio. Joe, Joe DiMaggio, we want you and us. He tied the mark at 44, July the 1st, you know. Since then, he's hit a good 12 more, Jolton Joe DiMaggio. Willie Mays is arguably the most exciting center fielder who ever played the game, but even Willie didn't possess Joe's graceful manner. DiMaggio didn't dive for balls or catch them at his shoe tops or lose his hat chasing a fly ball. He simply got to every ball without a stir. Dignity was his middle name. DiMaggio's exploits on the diamond were duplicated by his demeanor out of baseball. When his storybook marriage to Marilyn Monroe came to an end, he didn't write a kiss-and-tell book. He guarded his memories to the end. The tabloids couldn't buy his story for any price. Moreover, when Robert Kennedy visited the Yankee dugout during a 1960s old-timers game, DiMaggio refused to shake his hand. He could not forgive Kennedy for his exploitive treatment of Marilyn and refused to be hypocritical about it. Joe didn't forgive, and he didn't forget. Until shortly before his own death, Joe sent a half dozen roses each week to Marilyn's gravesite in Hollywood. Impeccably tailored, DiMaggio walked through the Yankee dugout in his later years as if beatified. He was a model for the young players, an icon for the older players. It is inconceivable that DiMaggio would wear a baseball cap backward or throw his bat in anger after a week's showing at the plate. He was a model of rectitude. He wrote the book on decorum at the stadium. Play hard with determination, but don't show up your opponent. Run out every hit at ball. 
Don't upbraid your teammates in public. Don't show off. Don't demean yourself with degrading public appearances. And always respect the game. Baseball and the rest of sports could benefit from a healthy dose of DiMaggio's dignity. Unfortunately, most players today seem unable to respect an athlete who refused to engage in degrading behavior on and off the field. The true measurement of a legend is its legacy. Now, after Jackie Robinson broke baseball's color barrier as a Dodger, the legend endures. Where have you gone, Jackie Robinson? When the Major League celebrated the 50th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's entry into baseball, breaking the color barrier and integrating the sport, my mind flashed back to 1948, the year I met him. It was Jackie's second year with the Brooklyn Dodgers. He'd already been named Rookie of the Year the previous season. On a day off, Jackie came to my elementary school on Ocean View Avenue in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. I was in the fourth grade and a fanatical Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Seeing Robinson was a dream come true. It wasn't only because Robinson displayed courage in standing up to racial taunts. It was because he was the single most exciting player of his generation. He wasn't as smooth as DiMaggio. He didn't have Ted Williams' batting eye or Stan Musial's graceful swing. But when Robinson was on base, he brought drama to the game. He could unnerve a pitcher more than anyone else I have seen on the diamond. His mere presence could change the complexion of a game. When Robinson entered the school auditorium... My heart beat so quickly I could barely breathe. My fourth grade teacher introduced me as an aspiring Major League Baseballer. My knees shaking, I asked Jackie to sign his baseball card, which was one of my prized possessions. This happened to a lot of other collectors. My cards were eventually discarded by my mother. He did so without hesitation, inquiring what position I liked to play. Shortstop, I blurted out. Well, I used to be a shortstop with the Kansas City Monarchs, he replied. Having read every book on Robinson, I was well aware of his minor league history, including his very successful year in Montreal before Branch Rickey called him up to the majors. For a moment, I felt as if me and Robinson were the only people in the room. Kid, did you ever get to games at Ebbets Field? Jackie inquired. My dad can take me every once in a while, I answered, but he said, here are two tickets for a game against the Pirates. If you want to play in the big leagues, you should become acquainted with the field. I flew home from school that day. I couldn't wait to tell my friends and my parents about my good fortune. From that day in 1948 until Robinson's retirement when he was sold to the hated New York Giants, I imitated Jackie's pigeon-toed gait. I held my bat high in the batter's box that Robinson did, and I followed every statistic that applied to him. In 1949, I used a slide rule for the first time to determine whether he, Ted Williams, or George Kell led the majors in batting since they all ended the season with 342 averages. By the way, Kell won it all, and Jackie led the National League in hitting. When my dad and I used the tickets that Robinson gave us, we arrived at Ebbets Field early, very early, and waited at the players' entrance until Robinson came. When Jackie saw me, he borrowed a stickball bat and a Spaldine from a youngster playing nearby and said, Show me what you've got, kid. His pitch was moderately fast, batting practice speed. I got around on it well and hit the ball about three sewers away. I always regarded this moment as divine intervention. As I ran to retrieve the ball, Jackie said to my dad, Your son is quite a hitter. My father glowed. I never made it to the big leads, although I did play college baseball. But Robinson was and remains my hero. In an era of greedy, self-indulgent athletes... 
I like to remind myself that Robinson never earned more than $35,000 a season and didn't complain about his salary. He signed autographs without a fee, and he influenced a life unknowingly. A press agent didn't have to tell him how to treat admirers. Robinson was a towering figure on the diamond, but he was an even more imposing figure off the field. He was a gentleman. He didn't have to pitch to me. He didn't have to tell my dad I was special. He did those things because he was a gracious man who understood his place in history. Jackie Robinson would be remembered for changing the game of baseball, turning his cheek when members of his own team refused to play with him, or opponents intentionally spiked him. All of that has become part of baseball lore. But I remember Robinson because he touched me, a poor kid from Brooklyn who idolized the Dodgers. When Robinson died in 1972, I went to his funeral with thousands of other admirers. My suspicion is that more than a few people in that long line of mourners were touched by Jackie as I had been. In those moments when I daydream about the past, I can see Jackie dancing off third, running halfway home, and forcing the opposing pitcher into a balk. I see him throwing that Spaldine to me, and I see my dad with a big smile on his face as Jackie's fastball exploded off my stick. Each and everybody can play. Yes, you know Jesus standing at the home plate. And life is a ball game, and you can tell the impact these two men had on Herb London's life as if it was yesterday. And that's the thing about these kind of memories, sports, music, and that's why we dig into the arts, why we dig into sports. It's a fundamental fabric of American life, part of all of our stories. Thank you, Herb. And this is Our American Stories. American Stories, and today we have one of our favorite regular features with marriage coach Deb Olniak, our in-house marriage coach, and this is our Marriage on the Mind segment, and this week she brings us the story of Ed and Alyssa, whose love story began like a Hollywood film, but then reality hit. They soon had to deal with the issues that arise when there is a lack of openness in a marriage, and we start with how Ed and Alyssa met. We met back in 1998, I want to say, and uh, I, I was uh, a nightclub owner in Oshkosh, recently gotten out of school, went into partnership with a friend of mine, and Elisa was a patron of my, um, of my bar, and uh, it was a nightclub, and she came in, she was one of the regulars that came in, and I was more or less, I would say, a, a bad boy. She came in, and you know, we started we started seeing each other, and yeah, kind of went from there. And Elisa, what did you think of Ed when you first saw him? 
Um, I was there with friends, and we were hanging out, and someone came up to bring me a drink and walked away, and my friend was like, do you know who that is? And I said, no. And she's like, he owns this place. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so, you know, it fit right in with my lifestyle at the time. I was a senior in college, and it happened to be the only club that offered dancing, and I love to dance. I have a dance background. So we fit. We fit. The first time we talked, I bet it was one of those romantic, you know, it was like six hours we spent on the phone, and he showed up weekly with flowers and really started to pursue me. Wow. And how long did you guys date before you got engaged? Well, the story is really important to tell that we, I slowly, I slowly decided that this probably wasn't the lifestyle I wanted to live. And my sister had been praying for me and had this talk about, you know, is this something you imagined in your life that, you know, your husband would run a bar and that really changed my heart. And I, I really became unsatisfied with our relationship, and I told Ed, well, we can go to a church or you can move on. So there was kind of a turning point. Um, Ed had gone through some, some depression. Definitely he was going to be losing the nightclub. His partner embezzled a whole bunch of money from him. And so he was going down a deep road, and I was walking away. And so we ended up meeting at a church that was kind of close to both of us. I was raised by my mom, and she died when I was 21 at a pretty young age. I got her life insurance, and she basically left me with a quarter of a million dollars. And uh, in the matter of a year and a half, I seemed to spend all of the money, went into $30,000 in the hole, and the guy that I went into partnership with at this nightclub embezzled over $50,000 out of the club. Mm. And so I didn't want to be alone, and I met Elisa, and... We pretty much fell in love, and I was at a at rock bottom, wanted to commit suicide and because uh, I had lost everything, and she said, let's go check out this church um, that's behind the apartment that I was living in back in 1998, and I said, what, what do I have to lose? I don't have anything to lose, and uh, I went, and that Sunday at that church, the pastor of that church was about a year older than me at the time, so he was probably 22, 23. He preached on the parable of the lost son, and I said, I looked at her, and she looked at me, and I, I, just started, I just started crying like crazy, and I was like, he's speaking right to me. Like, this is my life, and I wanted to know more about Christ, and I want to know more about this life. A few months later, um, we, were we were engaged. We have learned later, years into the marriage, that he really just wanted to be with me, so he was just going to do what he needed to do to stay with me. So really... Mm. You know, we started in what I thought was going to be this, you know, fairy tale. He loves Christ and he's going to lead me. He did the best he could with the resources he had, but God hadn't changed his heart. I mean, we both thought we were happy, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Didn't we? Yeah. Ed was going through all of the motions and I believed him. And that can happen. And if you're listening carefully, <laughs> going through the motions and folks believe in each other. Uh, that's a lot of marriages, I'm sure. And then things started to change. And how far into the marriage did you guys hit kind of that speed bump where you go, something's not exactly right here? Four years. About four years in. Okay. And who said what and what occurred that made you realize that that was happening? I was in our basement. Um, 
doing some work on the computer, um, and I had discovered that my husband was looking at pornographic sites. Mm-hmm. Um, and that stopped for me. Um, that changed my world. That changed my mm-hmm. life. That changed our marriage. I called my pastor. I completely freaked out. Um, I was hurt beyond any words. I was broken. I was cheated on. Everything, all these emotions came up when I thought my husband's looking at another woman and not me. I tried to control um, his problem, which is probably what I did most of the beginning. So my baggage, you know, from my childhood started coming in there. Um, But my mom was very in charge and in control. So that's what I went into. I went into trying to control his addiction and probably pushed him further away. I started some intense counseling, and he did also. I wasn't able, I wasn't making men's meet. My wife would come home, and the power was shut off in our house because I forgot to pay the bill. I mean, I was, I was pretty, pretty pathetic at that point. And again, resorting back into my old ways of porn and the addiction that I had. And when I came home from work, it was the middle of the week. I came home, and there was nobody home. The kids, the kids were gone. She was gone. I had no idea where they were. I went into the closet, and half of their stuff was gone. And she didn't tell me she was leaving. She didn't tell me. I didn't know where she went. or you know, I figured it out. I mean, she went to her sister's. And you stayed with your sister for what, like? Two months. Two months? I was there for a while, and um, there was a person that I didn't really know so well in my life that I was coming back to meet with Ed through our pastor. He had encouraged us not to be separated too long. Um and this woman, I was talking with her in the car, and she said, you, you don't get to quit. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, you don't get to just walk away. You made a commitment in front of the Lord, and you're going to stand in front of him someday and tell him, you know, why, or why you didn't walk away. And, you know, Ed and I definitely had many conversations on, he would say, just divorce me, just divorce me. And I said, I, I won't. But he never would, and he he would often use it as a threat. So it was then um, that I made this commitment. I didn't really know why. I just decided that I was it fit with my strong personality. I'm not going to walk away. I don't know how. I read The Power of a Praying Wife, and I got stuck on Chapter 1. You know, I was excited that I had all these things I could pray for my husband so that I could change him. But Chapter 1 says, God changed me. And that's when I broke. I thought, what? I'm the one who has to change. And I listed all these things he had done wrong. And I thought, if I don't mirror Christ to him and my children, there may be nobody else that does. And so I did. I dove myself into Christ and I got lost in him. And I came home and I was a different person. I was strong and confident in loving in a way that wasn't codependent because I wasn't going to be codependent anymore. And that is some powerful testimony, and we appreciate Ed and Elisa sharing, Elisa sharing those, those heartfelt sentiments. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by our marriage coach, Deb Wolniak, to talk about this and to talk about the many situations that she's seen in her life And walk us through this. And if you're listening and this sounds familiar, uh, you're going to love the next segment. After a few moments and a short break, 
Deb Olniak joins us. This is Lee Habib. Our Marriage on the Mind segment. This is Our American Story. This is our American Stories, our Marriage on the Mind segment. You had just heard from Ed and Elisa and the troubles in their marriage. And joining us now, Deb Wolniak. And Deb, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's pick up the story where they left off, Deb. Deb. They, they uh, decided to go on a family retreat where Dr. Richard Marks of LiveTheLife.org spoke. Tell us about the family retreat and what Dr. Marks talked to not only this couple about, but I would assume, Deb, the many other couples who joined Ed and Elisa. Well, I'll tell you what. This camp that they went to, some people are like, where is this place? It's in Wisconsin. It's called Fort Wilderness. And Dr. Richard Marks is a frequent uh, speaker up there and does an excellent job on helping couples address some of the challenges they have in their marriage through teaching and storytelling. And one thing I love about him, he's one of the best in the country that can meet with couples one-on-one anywhere in the country and help them privately with their relationship issues to people that are in groups like this was. And um, Ed and Elisa were at a point in their marriage where, you know, they thought everything was fine. They were going along just fine and they were up at camp and, Elisa realized at the first talk she heard from Dr. Richard Marks that she might be a walkaway wife. And some people are like, what is that? And let me tell you what that is. It's a wife who appears on the outside to be absolutely fine, holding the home together, driving the kids to school, things are fine, but there's something that's not right in the marriage. And there is a possibility for some people to experience this around, oh, year four, year seven, year 10, where they're right in the thick of lots of pressure in their family. And they have actually taken time with their husband at one point to try to discuss their feelings. This is how I feel. I don't know if something's right. You know, they're kind of that emotional caretaker of that relationship. They want to spend quality time together and have meaningful conversations and activities with their husband. And for some reason, the busyness and the activity or the husband is not hearing it right just kind of goes on deaf ears, and they go through the motions. And some of us know what that feels like. We get up, we do our daily tasks, we go to bed. We get up and daily tasks, go to bed. And our heart is not being paid attention to by our spouse or vice versa. We're not investing in our spouse. There's a point where a woman will shut off. 
they won't talk about their feelings anymore. They don't even want to, you know, um, go into a conflict mode. And husbands have a tendency to think, well, we're doing great. You know, guys come up to them at work or whatever. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're great. And all of a sudden, the wife starts to plan the drop-dead date. That's the date that she is planning to exit that household. This could be when kids are about ready to go off to college or when they become empty nesters. But in her mind, she said, I'll put up with this because no one's reaching out to me and I'm done. And they can hold on for 10, 15 years. And then suddenly, the husband is receiving the divorce papers out of nowhere. And he says that word that all the wives were like, see, I told you so. I didn't know there was anything wrong, he says. And that's proof that she realizes, I have done this for so long and you haven't even been awake. This is one of the most devastating things because things that we do on this radio program, the stories we share are to help encourage people to wake up in a reality today and start to do marriage and relationship well in a healthy way that's going to help benefit them as a couple and their children. It is unbelievable how many marriages end like this and it doesn't need to and if you're feeling like that and you're on that spectrum somewhere i really really want you to reach out to organizations like livethelife.org down in florida like great marriages up in sheboygan wisconsin you need to get help in your area if you look at um, some of the things with Prepare and Enrich, I've said that before, that is crucial to understand where your strengths and challenge areas are, and you need to be able to identify what that is. Dr. Richard Marks was able to have a personal conversation with Elisa up there at camp, and she said, I don't know if this is me. And he said, yes, it is. And she had a wake-up call. Ed had a wake-up call during that time, and they were starting to be able to address some of the core issues that they have been dealing with over the last few years. And in the end, it's like all things, it's just communication. And no matter what the wife might have thought, maybe she wasn't communicating clearly enough to Mm -hmm. the husband. And moreover, maybe the husband just wasn't listening. And it takes, you know, the two of them, as always, are probably to some degree to blame. But Deb, the the walkaway wife is, is much more likely to occur than the walkaway husband, correct? Oh, that is absolutely correct, because the woman most of the time, and it's not all the time, is the emotional key holder. And when it's almost like the canary in the mine shaft. You know how the miners would go down, and if the canary dropped dead, that means the loss of air and some of the poisonous gases are in there. they got to get out. Yep. If your wife says, warning flag, I feel blah, 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 do not disregard that. You need to stop what you're doing, put everything down, turn and look at her, and say, tell me more, and do not be afraid. The one thing that keeps this bad situation in play to push people apart is fear. It's the fear of, oh, my goodness, if I open this can of worms, I don't know how to close it, or I don't know how to deal with it. You must deal with it, or it will deal with you. And, you know, the, the Dr. Marx's approach here, Deb, how did he deal with them individually? Did he take them apart? Um, did he have them together, both? What, what was his approach here uh, with this couple? So in this case, I did not get the full story on that. I'm going to be very honest with you on that. But I have seen him work with different couples in groups and um, have heard some of those pieces from the couples themselves after meeting with Dr. Richard Marks. And here's what the outcomes are. 
there is a point where in that conversation, the couple realizes that there's a problem. The couple then um, usually ends up talking about it with Dr. Richard Marks and really digesting that a little bit. Where does that come from? Um, in the storyline, um, we hear Alyssa, um, Alisa, I'm sorry, talk about um, the pornography issue. That is rampant in our country and absolutely devastating for those that are seeing that on their computer. I've, I can encourage anybody, if they're struggling with that, to look up covenanteyes.com to help uh, monitor the equipment that's in their home, the computers, the phones, et cetera. This can be a huge help to families who have teens, which, by the way, is one of the fastest-growing audiences for porn, that 68% of young men and 18% of young women view porn online at least once a week. That's just our young folks. For those that are struggling and maybe even have had um, an adulterous situation, if they've committed adultery, the men increase their chances of looking at pornography by 218%. And men are more likely look, to look at porn um, than women. I think some people may have known that, but it's at the rate of 543% more likely to look at porn than females. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of risk. Once porn starts entering the picture, it's very hard for couples to try to gain a foothold. In those very difficult situations, you need an accountability partner, and you need to talk to somebody full honesty and uh, vulnerable to make sure that you are emptying that basket and trying to get help. One of the things porn is is it's an addiction, and you cannot treat it lightly. You must address it head on, and you must be honest with your spouse. Can spouses stay together? Yes, they can, but it takes lots of work and lots of honesty, and in this case, this couple, you can hear it, has a faith background. That's what they use to help address this issue, look for healing and look for forgiveness so that that person owns the behavior that they had and yet still receives that healing part that comes along once you work through those situations. It's not a quick fix. It's not a Band-Aid situation. You have to go deep to root this one out. And that's a very serious thing. And if you're struggling with that, you need to call a professional in your area. If you have further questions, I would highly encourage you to look up Dr. Richard Marks with LiveTheLife.org and get a hold of some of those professionals if you have further questions, and they can also refer people in your area. Yeah, and again, that faith background, particularly, Deb, must help on the forgiveness front because it's a requirement, at least of Christian faith and and Judaism as well. And, And you just... You have to do it. You don't have yeah. a choice. Uh, but right. th- this this pornography issue, what what just shortly, Deb, in about a minute and a half, what what are some of the underlying circumstances or reasons for that? The top two that you've heard or seen in your in your work. Well, I think a lot of it. A lot of the men I've talked to have said that they've been introduced to pornography either by friends or by a family member, possibly even their dad, and some of it is inadvertent. Um, I remember also when our technology uh, was first coming online and the web was coming online, I remember when we did not have some of these safety measures up, you could accidentally click on something and boom, something would pop up and you'd be shocked. I mean, even our kids looking on the web, you never know when it's going to hit. The thing that that is also happening is it's like um, cocaine. You can't stop it or like heroin. Once you start, it's like a bottomless pit unless you get help right away. 
Um, you can get sucked in so fast, it will affect your relationships and it's very hard to get out of by yourself. You need to get help. Well, it's an addiction and we know that and we, well, we have to talk about it and we talk about everything here on Our American Stories and you've got to talk about this if you're talking about marriages because it affects so many as does alcohol and drugs. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our Marriage on the Mind segment, as always, brought to us and with Deb Wolniak. Deb, thanks so much for everything you do. Thank you. You bet. And thank you, Ed and Elisa, for sharing your story with us. stories and from time to time we like to take a deep dive on a book we've done it with amity schlaes and forgotten man we did it with david mcculloch and we did it with the wright brothers story my favorite of his believe it or not and he's written so many great books on the greatest americans in history and another favorite of ours and one of our favorite writers by the way too it's just a great read every time in the wall street journal reading about people talking about their cars Famous people, not so famous people. It's A.J. Bame, and he writes regularly about cars for the Wall Street Journal. But he's also author of The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an Epic Quest to Arm America at War. And we love to tell great American stories about the impact businesses have had on this country, uh, on the employment level, on the growth of this country, the American dream. But, boy, the impact that a person like Ford had in our ability to fight and repel the Nazi menace is, I think, underreported. And, A.J., thanks so much for joining us. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you very much. You bet. So let's start off in the 1930s, if we could. What was going on at this time? The Nazis were up to no good. They were, they were building up a huge military, uh, while we have one smaller than Belgium. Talk about that. <laughs> well, it's fascinating. I mean... Uh, I think a lot of people today look back on World War II and think, well, Hitler was evil and uh, we beat up on the Nazis and that was it. It was very complicated and started in the 1930s during the Great Depression uh, due to neutrality acts and lack of funds and lack of resources in the United States. Our military really went to pot. Um, we had an army that ranked 16th in the world in size with fewer than 200,000 men uh, when World War II started in Europe. Uh, compared to 7 million Nazi soldiers. We had no legitimate munitions industry in this country. Um, the Army Air Corps had fewer than 1,300 combat planes. Most of them were technologically obsolete. We were completely com uh, unprepared for war, whereas Hitler had been planning for years and had built up this massive military industry and force. Uh, and that was the very basics of the picture when Germany invaded Poland on September 1, 1939. And, A.J., a lot of it has to do with, I think, two things, probably. World War I, I think we were exhausted. Foreign entanglements may not have been our bag. And then the Great Depression. And you add those two things together, and that might explain the nature and, and, and size and inconsequential nature of our, of our military. 
Absolutely. Also, just the fact that after World War One, you know, it's hard for people to fathom today with modern communications and everything and radio, you know, uh, just just the idea after World War One that the United States, we had this giant moat around us. We had the Atlantic on one side and the Pacific on one side. And after World War One, our leaders were thinking that we really didn't need to be involved in foreign wars. Um, through the 1920s and 30s, things really changed politically, economically, as populations grew and, and technology grew. Countries became linked together in ways that were not anticipated earlier by our political leaders. So after World War I, it was not so hard for politicians to sign neutrality acts, saying we are not going to go to war in other countries. Um, they didn't anticipate something like Hitler coming along. Well, and what happened in Europe stays in Europe. Well, that just wasn't as much the case, uh, I guess, is your basic proposition, AJ. Exactly. And, and one of the things I, I write about quite a bit in the arsenal of democracy is the whole, the, the fact that the bomber aircraft was really a game-changing weapon, because here was a weapon that could take off from an aircraft carrier somewhere far away, fly 1,500 miles, and drop bombs on, on civilian populations. Uh, of course, the airplane existed during World War I, but nothing like the modern aircraft that really revolutionized warfare. So at the end of the 1930s, when the war began in Europe, Hitler had all these amazing bombers. He had built the Luftwaffe, the first modern air force. We had nothing like it. It's so true. And by the way, let's not forget, even as we approached World War II, there were really, really strong poles to isolationism. I mean, you had some of our most famous politicians and political figures and, and frankly, some of our most famous aviators, uh, we can name Juan Lindbergh, who just thought this is a waste of time. Absolutely. The two biggest anti-war activists in 1940, well, just to address your point, of course, the great debate of the nation in 1940 was about isolationism versus interventionism. Should we be a part of this war going on in Europe? What the Hitlers were, what Hitler and the Nazis were doing was obviously terrifically unjust. Uh, they were, when they, you know, they attacked London, they were killing civilians, they were rounding up Jews, although most people didn't realize that early on. Um, what, what should be our role? There were a lot of very powerful figures in America who said that we should have nothing to do with this. And two of the most powerful, high-profile anti-war activists in 1940, leading right up to Pearl Harbor, were Henry Ford, who came to play a major role in World War II, as we will soon find out, and Charles Lindbergh. It's amazing to think that, you know, at the beginning of the war, we were desperate for aircraft engineers, desperate for airplanes and pilots, because the aircraft was going to be the revolutionary weapon in the war. And Hitler, because, I mean, and uh, Lindbergh, because he was an anti-war activist, he couldn't, get, he couldn't get a job in the Army. He was not allowed to fly. Fascinating. And by the way, the more things change, the more they stay the same, AJ. Isolationism versus interventionism. You think we're still talking about that and grappling with that? I think that's one of the more fundamental discussions we're battling with here on the foreign policy uh, front in America. And I don't know that there are clear answers. I think there were clearer answers then, though, AJ. I think World War II was the end of the era when clear answers would present themselves. I think that's so true. And when we come back, we're going to deep dive and take a deep dive into A.J. Bame's book, The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an Epic Quest to Arm America at War. And when you get a chance, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. 
Go to topics, and under topics are This Day in History, now has about 125 stories. One of them is the life of Henry Ford. We touch a little on this interventionism and non-intervention argument in Ford's life, but what we really drive, drive down on is what Ford did and how he helped create an industrial America. He and Rockefeller and some of these other robber barons who've been reviled and perhaps properly so on some, in some dimensions, but in others, perhaps not. When we come back, more with A.J. Bame and his great book after these messages. Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with A.J. Bain, author of The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an Epic Quest to Arm America at War. And go to Amazon and get this book. It came out in 2014, but you know what? Buy it. Um, an older book is a newer book if you haven't read it. And we love drilling down on some of these books and stories that intersect with some of the things we talk about here on Our American Story. Uh, A.J., what was the automobile industry doing in the 1930s, both in the United States and and equally important in Europe? Okay, very complicated. Let me see if I can boil it down um, to just a few points here. For starters, the Great Depression, people were buying cars like wildfire in the 1920s. The Great Depression comes and people stopped buying cars. Um, and, And the automobile industries really suffered. So that's point number one. Point number two, in 1935, Roosevelt um, signed into law an act which enabled legally workers to unionize for the first time. And this was really a game-changing thing in the automobile industry. Suddenly, it put a lot of power into the hands of workers that they didn't have before and really pit workers against the companies they worked for. Now, General Motors and Chrysler, two of the big three, signed very important deals with the unions in 1937, 1938. Henry Ford refused to do so. So um, the Ford Motor Company at this time became a real hotbed of potential violence and eventually violence because there was so much stress in the power struggle between the unions and Ford and the men that ran the company. Now, in Europe... In Germany specifically, Germany had the only economy in the world at the time that, that, that had a labor shortage. German, the German economy, the Nazi economy in the late 1930s was booming. People didn't realize at the time why. The reason why was because Hitler was building this extraordinary military power. Um, the American companies, the automobile industries, had uh, big investments inside Nazi Germany that they could not afford to lose during the Great Depression. It was the only place where they were really making a lot of profits, but this put uh, the automobile companies in a very delicate position in terms of their relationship to the Nazi empire. That's a real jam they're in, AJ. Oh, yeah, and, real jam. And not one that, that, that they could have foreseen. And so often many of the jams we enter into our lives 
We didn't know we were about to enter. They, they just sort of happen. And uh, let's talk about the importance. Uh, before we get, go forward, let's talk about the importance of Henry Ford's innovation in mass production and the ability to lower the price of cars, move out the number of cars made with greater speed and rapidity. I think it has great consequence for what happens next. Talk about that. Absolutely. Well, you know, Henry Ford, people talk about the Model T as being his, you know, his masterpiece, but his masterpiece was really not the car. It was the factory that could produce it. He had this wild imagination that enabled him, and it wasn't all him, of course. There were, there were people who worked with him who were extremely important early on, like William Knudsen and Charlie Sorensen, these great two Danes, by the way, these great production engineers. And all these minds together dreamed up these massive factories with integrated mass production that enabled them to produce a lot of cars very cheaply and enabled Americans and people all over the world to buy cars. So the automobile revolutionized human life and the human economies. Your book is, uh, your book is titled The Arsenal of Democracy, which, of course, was the title of FDR's famous fireside chat. Let's listen to this clip, and then I'll ask you a quick question. Guns, planes, ships, and many other things have to be built in the factories and the arsenals of America. They have to be produced by workers and managers and engineers with the aid of machines, which in turn have to be built by hundreds of thousands of workers throughout the land. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. Talk about the importance, A.J., of that speech, both at home and abroad, because the Nazis were listening to this speech, too. Just to listen to FDR's voice, so moving. Every time I hear that, right now, even as I speak, I have goosebumps all over my arms. It was so moving. Now, the point in the Arsenal of Democracy, the book I wrote, there's two narratives happening at the same time. One is FDR realizes before everybody else that America is going to get stuck in this war. And before everybody else, he envisions a way that the war will be fought and won. It was going to be a contest of mass production. And so as you heard in this, uh, what he was just saying is we need to build guns, ships, airplanes, jeeps, tents field kitchen, underwear. We need to sew underwear. We need to have farmers grow food. All of that has to happen with more speed and more volume than it ever happened before in the history of the world. What? That's what FDR yep. is saying. Now, the, the, um, the automobile industry becomes involved because there was no industry on earth with greater mass production expertise than the automobile industry. So um, that's, that's uh, how the automobile industry came to play a starring role. Now, you asked about Europe. Yes, indeed. The, the, uh, the Nazis were listening in, and I write about this in my book, of what the Nazis thought when they heard that speech, and they just didn't believe that America could do what had to be done to defeat the Nazis. They didn't believe it could happen. Yeah, there's a quote in your book in which you uh, sort of pointed out that even Joseph Goebbels listened to the speech and said this, what can the USA do faced with our arms capacity? They will never be able to produce as much as we we who have the entire economic capacity of Europe at our disposal, disposal uh, a, a slight underestimation on Goebbels' part. Absolutely. And why did he have a complete, you know, capacity of Europe? Because the Nazis had conquered most of Europe by the time FDR had given this speech. 
Um, it's amazing to think about, but the Nazis too, they understood that this war was going to be fought not just with, you know, infantry men and lines on battlefields. It was going to be fought in factories at home. So how does FDR drag Henry Ford into this war effort? It's quite a story. Talk about that if you could, AJ. It's amazing to think that Henry Ford, at the time, he's one of the most outspoken anti-war activists. He's a great enemy, a personal enemy of Roosevelt. He hated Roosevelt. Um, and it's very complicated how he became involved. Two things happened. One is FDR called the president of General Motors, William Knudsen, and asked Knudsen, who, was, who had the largest salary of any man working outside of Hollywood in the country, to come down to Washington and work for the government for one dollar a year. And Newton left his job as the president of General Motors to take this job at one buck a year to help America prepare for war. And Newton was key because he, he was really the one who got the automobile industry on board, right? Um, the other thing that happened was Pearl Harbor happened. And, uh, you know, once Pearl Harbor, Harbor happened, it really ignited the patriotism in, even in anti-war activists like Henry Ford. The third thing is Henry Ford's son, Etzel, who plays a very important part in my book, The Arsenal of Democracy, he was a fan of Roosevelt's, and Edsel had quite a bit to do with getting his father and getting Ford Motor Company involved in the war, and everything that happens after that is really fascinating. That's really the guts of what this book is about. Yeah, we're going to dig into that in the next segment, AJ. Uh, just a bit here, how did Henry Ford build his first automobile? Let's go back again before we go forward, because there's a tremendous backstory here about this guy who grows up in a Detroit in a Michigan farm and ends up giving us this freedom that we all enjoy today, the affordable car. It started with a, a, a gadget. He was playing around in, his, um, in a shed behind his house. He was uh, living in Detroit in an apartment with his wife and his only child, Edsel. He had very little money. Edsel was a baby. Um, and uh, he was just building this sort of invention in the back in this shed. Now, uh, the car, the motor car existed. Carl Benz had built one, you know, some 15 years earlier. But there was no and there was an automobile industry at the time, but it was very small. And there was no brands that were nationally known. It was just a bunch of tinkerers. Um, Henry Ford built this this vehicle in a shed and he drove it through Detroit. And uh, the car was really spread its own gospel. It was its own PR machine. People saw it and thought to themselves, wow, look at that thing. And he was able to begin to open a factory and be, begin building these things successfully, which was a very difficult thing to do. Hundreds of automobile companies existed, and 95% of them probably went out of business. Um, his genius was building factories that could spit these things out cheaply on volume. And it had to do in the end with efficiencies of scale, and operational talents that others hadn't possessed. A uh, quote from the book, his company summed up the philosophy of Ford, quote, I will build a motor car for the great multitude. It will be so low in price that no man making a good salary will be unable to own one. When we come back, we're going to dive into the relationship between Henry Ford and his son Etzel, because it is the central part of this narrative, and it is why, in the end, Henry Ford enters the war and helps power the arsenal of democracy. This is Lee Habib, and we're talking about a great book, and it's by a Wall Street Journal writer, A.J. Bame, The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an Epic Quest to Arm America at War. More after these messages.
is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with A.J. Bame, author of The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an Epic Quest to Arm America at War. And we periodically take some deep dives into our favorite books. Uh, this is the fourth, by the way, not fifth, but the second from a Wall Street Journal writer. We did uh, a terrific uh, dive on the foolproof, uh, terrific book by Greg Ipp, who is the economics editor of the Wall Street Journal. We left off things with uh, you talking to us about Henry Ford and his and Etzel and how Etzel played a key part in bringing the father closer to the war effort and to FDR. And by the way, as we know, Henry Ford had no love of FDR. Talk about that. Well, excellent. Etzel Ford um, was this amazingly is this amazingly misunderstood character. Um, and just diving into his history really quickly, here's a kid who grew up with thinking of his father as a backyard tinkerer who had no money. You know, his father was very eccentric. People thought he was strange. The family had no money. By the time Etzel's a teenager, his father is probably the richest, most famous man in the world. Now, think about that. Um, it happened very quickly. Now, Etzel uh, had, had big dreams for himself, and he thought as a young man, a teen, teenager, just a few years after um, the Wright brothers first flew their, you know, their first airplane, that Etzel could do with the airplane industry, for the airplane industry what his dad did for cars. So he thought of himself as this budding aviation engineer. And indeed, with his father's permission, the two of them together launched a Ford aircraft company. And for a short time, due to Etzel, Ford was the biggest airplane manufacturer in the country in the 1920s. Now, two things happened to Etzel. I'm trying to, I'm trying to sum this up very quickly. Um, one is his father was an anti-war activist and refused to allow Etzel to serve in World War I. And Etzel was brutally maligned in the newspapers. I mean, think about it. Here you have this famous man's son who's not allowed to serve in the war while all these other sons in, uh, are heading off to battle and dying in the trenches. And Etzel's at home safely. He was brutalized in the press at a very tender age. He's a late teenager, early 20s, and it really affected his life. Um, uh, the Great Depression destroyed the aviation engineer, uh, uh, industry, so he lost his dreams of the future. He, um, so he wanted to be an aviation guy. It didn't work out. And he, didn't, he really had a hard time living up to his father's expectations, and he became a very depressed man. He was the president of Ford Motor Company for, for more than half of his life. Um, but he, he lived in the shadow of his famous father. And when the war came, Etzel saw, saw the war as a last-ditch effort to, to um, become a man. He was dying of cancer when the war began. And uh, he, he threw his company in, into the war effort, thinking this was his last shot at, you know, at dignity and integrity in the public eye. And he died before the war was over. Um, but the war was his, his, uh, his, his uh, I guess, his his defining thing, you know, in the end when he died. Yeah, that, that had to be his defining moment in his life, uh, AJ. What's interesting also is the dynamic between this father and son. I mean, Edsel wanted to unionize. It was Henry that didn't. Edsel wanted to support the war effort. Henry didn't. Edsel wanted to bring in college-educated executives and corporate flowcharts. Henry didn't. Edsel wanted trained accountants. His dad believed, well, not in accountancy, that's for sure. Edsel liked to smoke, drink, and socialize. Henry was, uh, well, you know, let's just say not exactly the most exciting guy at a party. Uh, so these guys, they had real differences, and yet there was a love between them at the same time that there was this war between them. That's exactly right, and that's what makes the relationship to so touching because, as I say in the book, you know, these were a father, this was a father and a son 
who loved each other desperately. I have a son. I, you know, many of your listeners do. Uh, there's a, it's a very special bond that's not like anything else. But like many in fathers and sons, Edsel and uh, Henry, they really clash. And th- their clash was very much a clash be- between modernity and the way things used to be. Um, there was a generation gap there that, that was very hard for, for, the, for the two of them to see to the other side. You write in the book, if ever there was a way for Edsel to live up to his father's legacy and expectations, the airplane was it. And FDR had just asked for 50,000 airplanes in May of 1940. Talk about how Edsel was so critical in the development of this movement into aviation. Get, let's get into maybe one specific story, if we could, AJ, because that's, first of all, that's a staggering number for a president to ask an American manufacturer to come up with whole cloth. Absolutely. The bomber, the four-engine bomber, FDR was convinced, was going to be the key weapon. So what Edsel did was he, get, he got his chief engineer, Charlie Sorensen, cast iron Charlie, they call them, and they flew out together to San Diego to take a look at this new airplane called the B-24 Liberator. The company was called Consolidated. Consolidated had no ability to mass produce this airplane, which was the biggest, most destructive airplane in our arsenal. We just had a few of them, and nobody knew how to build them en masse. So Edsel and Charlie Sorensen, they came up with this idea to build the biggest factory in the world, the biggest airplane factory in the world, the biggest factory under one roof of any kind in the world, and try to build the biggest airplane in our arsenal at a rate of one per hour. This had never been done, and certainly not by a company that did not build airplanes. Ford was a car manufacturer. Everybody said it couldn't be done. And Edsel set off on this industrial adventure while dying of cancer, and he passed away before he ever knew whether his dream of building this liberator at one per hour would succeed. Yeah, that was one of the ironies and the tragedies of the story, A.J., is he didn't get to see what happened. And by the way, just so people know, the B-24 Liberator, the plane was 66 feet 4 inches long, 17 feet 11 inches tall, at a 110-foot wingspan. It was the widest in America. Total takeoff weight was 60,000 pounds. It could travel at 300 miles an hour for over 3,000 miles further than any American plane with the equivalent horsepower, A.J., of 56 Ford V8 cars, and it could carry 8,000 pounds of bombs. So this was a plane that was a difference maker. Um, Talk about the Liberator and the importance to the war effort. Well, some people uh, today might be familiar with the Liberator from the book Unbroken, Lauren Hillenbrand's uh, amazing bestseller in the movie. Um, There's a B-24 featured in that film, um, but, you know, at the time, in the, at the end of the 1930s into the early 40s, it was the biggest, most destructive airplane in our arsenal. And the Ford set out to make it the most mass-produced military aircraft in, in the history of the world. It was a game-changer. It wasn't a very friendly uh, airplane. It was very difficult to fly. Um, and uh, it was, it was mass-produced at such a rate that it, there was a lot of glitches and things didn't go well in these airplanes. But... Um, until the B-29 came around, which really happened in, at the end of 1944 into 1945, this was our most destructive bomber. And uh, the Ford succeeded. So still today, still to this day, the B-24 Liberator is the most mass-produced military aircraft in this country of all time. It's really something. And, you know, one of the things I'd recently done was taking my family to the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. And I think one of the other great innovations was the Higgins boat. 
And uh, and Higgins, what he created, Eisenhower had actually told Stephen Ambrose that Higgins was one of the most important unheard of men in the war that most Americans didn't know. And it was for the same reason, innovation and the capacity to just push out thousands of these fast, AJ. And it was the speed and the volume. It must have shocked the Nazis, actually. Absolutely. The, the, the Higgins boat is a fascinating story. It really is. Um, and I saw the, I assume you saw the Arsenal of Democracy exhibit at the World War II Museum, which was up. And I, I spoke, uh, I gave a speech there. I don't know if you saw that one, but what a wonderful museum. And the Higgins boat story is amazing. And I think I mentioned it in, in the book. But it was this whole idea, like FDR said, every man, woman, and child is a part of the greatest undertaking in our American history. There's no doubt. And folks, if you get a chance, New Orleans is worth visiting anyway for the food and the music. For the National World War II Museum, it is my favorite museum in the world. And I, I love museums. There's nothing like it. And they have exhibits there that will make you cry. It will make you learn about what remarkable things that generation did. And not just what the generals and the soldiers did, but what some of the business people did. And they, they often get overlooked. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the song that made Billy Joel an international star. You knew the song from the opening chord progressions, just like great guitarists catch you with a hook, the way Keith Richards did. Elton John and Billy Joel knew how to do that with a keyboard. That's why they were who they were. And this is our best of special one hour. We like to dip back and look at some of our best of the past and one of our favorites was Billy Joel's master class at the University of Pennsylvania, where he was teaching a bunch of students, 2,000 of them, and fans, the craft of songwriting and the business of the music business. During a question and answer period, one young lady asked, because she has a little girl, how did the song Lullaby come to be? Take it from here. All right, so I had this, 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 uh, this melody... Which is how I write songs. I, I wrote the music first. She goes, Daddy, what happens when you die? So I said, oh, man. Okay. And I told her what I really believed. And what I really believe is what happens when you die is you go into other people's hearts. That You never really go away. You go into the rest of the people that you knew, you go into the rest of their lives. They, they take them with you. So, uh, but also this was during a time when her mom and I were splitting up. So this was like a double-pronged thing, like, Daddy, are you going to leave me? And I said, I'll never leave you. 
I'll, I'll, I'll ne- I will never leave you. I'll never go away. I will never, never, ever leave you. So um, it, it was it was a tough answer, you know, in, in both respects. So I'm trying to remember when, when I was right now. So he struggles a little bit more, and he's actually tearing up. You can tell this is a really hard song for him to sing, and this is the thing about music in the end and a story. And think about this. He's, he's really trying to solve a problem. That's what brings him to this song. So let's go a little bit further down in this master class. Here's Billy Joel again. Questions for another day. I think I know what you've been asking me. I think you know what I've been trying to say. I promised I would never leave you, and you should always know. Never will be far away. And there you have it, Billy Joel answering his little girl's question with a song. He continues through the second verse, and as he gets through the end, he has a almost a breakdown. He starts to cry, he starts to pull away from the microphone. It's so emotional, it's so intimate. He never gives this explanation of the song when he's at Madison Square Garden. But here it's just him, a keyboard and a couple of thousand people. Well, he comes back to the keyboards and shares the stunning final verse of this song again for his little girl. Good night, my angel, now it's time to dream. And dream how wonderful your life will be Someday your child may cry and if you sing this lullaby then in your heart there will always be a part of me Someday we'll all be gone, but lullabies go on and on. They never die, that's how you and I will be. A master song, a master songwriter, shifting it to the future. The little girl singing this lullaby to her little girl. That's what art can do. Take us across time, across generations, race, class, ethnicity. This is Lee Habib, our American stories, Billy Joel's story to his little girl, his little girl's story to her little girl. More after this. And from art to history... 
Here is our piece on the life of Alexander Hamilton, which, by the way, is now art itself on Broadway. Take a listen. He was an immigrant to the United States, one of the seven foreign-born signers of the Constitution, something we don't often hear about. He was aide to camp to then General George Washington, the nation's first Treasury Secretary, the founder of the Federalist Party, our nation's financial system, the United States Coast Guard, and the New York Post. Not bad for one life. Hamilton was a prolific author, including 51 of the 85 essays that formed the Federalist Papers. And he was one of only three non-presidents to have his face on American currency. Sacagawea on the $1 coin, Hamilton on the $10 bill, and Ben Franklin on the 100 In 2004, author Ron Chernow published the definitive biography of his life titled Alexander Hamilton. And on this day that Hamilton was born, we take you to select portions of a talk Chernow gave about his book to the New York Historical Society. Chernow started things out, like all good stories, at the beginning of Alexander Hamilton's life. He was an illegitimate boy born on the British island of Nevis. He had suffered through a series of childhood traumas that would have shattered a lesser figure. His father abandons the family when Alexander is 11. Mother dies of tropical fever when he's 13. He's then farmed out to a first cousin who commits suicide years later. Calamities of biblical proportions seem to find their way to this young man. I had a friend of mine once describe how Alexander Hamilton's childhood. Thus, he had more sad stories than the Old Testament. And he did. And as Chernow described, my goodness. Father abandons family at 11. Mother dies of tropical fever at 13. Farmed out to a first cousin who commits suicide. You can't make this stuff up. It's so bad. Despite the traumas, he's a precocious young man. In 1772, in other words, about a year before the Boston Tea Party, a monster hurricane lashes St. Croix, and this self-taught prodigy sits down, and he pens a description of the hurricane of such precocious force and eloquence that the local merchants, recognizing this wonder in their midst, band together to finance his education in North America. The wunderkind studied at King's College in Lower Manhattan, later renamed Columbia, King's being a slightly awkward and inconvenient name after the Revolution. And already as undergraduate extraordinaire, Hamilton is publishing stirring pamphlets against the British. He takes up a musket and he drills with his fellow students in nearby St. Paul's Churchyard, today adjacent to Ground Zero. And he delivers spellbinding speeches to large crowds on what is today New York City Hall Park. So you're getting to know just a little bit about the nature and character of this young man and overcoming obstacles, overcoming status, overcoming regional differences. This young man thrives. Hamilton's strange studies? Take a listen. Hamilton also totes along six volumes of Plutarch's lives, and he takes the empty pages of a military paybook, and we see him recording notes on foreign exchange, population growth, geography, even European rivers that he will never set eyes on. In fact, in his notes, very interesting notes called from Plutarch, we see a young man who seems absolutely bewitched by the bizarre sexual practices of ancient Rome. For instance, Hamilton noted that in ancient Rome, young married women 
seemed to enjoy being whipped by lusty young noblemen. Why? Because they thought that it aided conception. I can tell you, when you study our founding fathers, you are led down all sorts of unexpected byways. (laughs) (laughs) So true. And what's so wonderful about Chernoff's storytelling is that he humanizes the human. And anyone who gets through American history courses and finds them boring, it's not the history that's boring, folks. It's your teacher. It's your teacher. And regrettably, too many history teachers kill this otherwise unbelievable material. Plutarch. I mean, he's studying Plutarch. He's studying foreign exchanges. Who studies both of those things, let alone one? A kid who finds himself at Columbia University. Pretty unbelievable. And it is pretty unbelievable. And this is our American stories. Billy Joel, Alexander Hamilton. And by the way, Alexander Hamilton's life set to hip-hop, the hottest show in the world. In the world. There's now people being shamed in New York for not having seen Hamilton. Imagine that. This is Lee Habib. This is the best of, of our American stories. Our best stuff made for you, just in case you missed it. <laughs> 